Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Church. It's good to be with you, whether you're here in person, worshiping with us online, whether you've been a part of the fellowship community for many years, or whether this is one of your first times worshiping with us. Welcome. A special note to those of you who are worshiping online, this morning we will conclude our service by coming to the table and we will share in communion together. So if you haven't had a moment to gather your elements, and for those of you in person, we do have them outside of the doors here in the gallery. But if you haven't had a moment um, online, if you're worshiping with us, grab some crackers or bread, some wine or some juice or whatever you have on hand, and then we can take communion together at the end of this service. Well, this morning, our call to worship is really a prayer, and so I would invite you to stand, and we'll use the words that are on the screen to pray this prayer together. It will be responsive. Uh, my words will be in white writing, and your words will be in yellow-orange writing. So let's pray together as we begin our time of worship. Loving God, we come to you in worship and thanksgiving. You are greater than we can understand. Open our eyes that we may see the wonderful truths you have shown to us in Jesus. You are more loving than our hearts can respond to. Help us to give ourselves to you in worship so that we learn what you want us to be. You are wiser than we can know. Still our minds as we worship you so that we can understand the things you are saying. Loving God, in Jesus, you chose to come to the world in humility. You chose the path the world saw as foolish. You used what the world considered weak. We worship and adore you. Amen. Let's sing together.
Well, good morning, church, and happy Sunday. So glad to gather with you for worship this morning, and it is indeed a glad day to do so. We have uh, not only our common life together to celebrate, but also we have special guest preacher with us this morning to look forward to, and we also get to go to the Lord's table at the end of our service. So much good is yet before us. Thanks be to God. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We thank you for joining us in that mission and welcome many others who want to join us in it as well. One of the fun developments for us to do that this week was that uh, we had our Bibles put back into our sanctuary, which is something that COVID taught us not to take for granted. And Aiden Eppart, we have a photo, was the one who did it for all of us. So special thanks to Aiden for putting these Bibles back. How cool. Bryce helped him do so, and uh, it was a, a great thing. So the, the scriptures are back here if you want to follow along with the readings even this morning. Also of note, maybe you know this, but today is a very significant day for my colleague in ministry. Nate Skipper is 40 years old today, so he is somewhere having a midlife crisis probably, but he wanted no responsibilities this morning, and we celebrate with him and his life among us. Uh, it's very, very good. Also a reminder uh, as we continue in our summer series that uh, each week you have the opportunity not only to engage us with the sermons, but also to participate in the decorating of our gallery wall submitting a word of the week. And it's been really fun to see the ones that you submit and to see what God, by God's Spirit, puts on your hearts. And it kind of spins and spools up a different way of hearing the message of the week. So please do keep at that. You can do so again this week, either online or by a tear-off uh, in the bulletin. Uh, the word of the week from this past week, submitted by Cheryl Van Appledorn, was Hope, which is very fitting for, it's almost providential, so it's pretty good. Uh, uh, there's a prize also, kids, so get in on this. You can go to Captain Sunday for five bucks uh, if, uh, if you win the word of the week, so kids, submit your stuff too. A reminder or an invitation as well, uh, we have had Community Action House in our gym for quite some time now. We're glad to do so. And food boxes get shipped out to people who are in a time of transition or in need in our community. They'll eventually have their building ready again, and they'll be moving out. And in and helping them to be all the more ready for that, we're looking for the fellowship family to really boost them next Sunday on the 18th or the Tuesday after that, the 20th. Uh, you're invited to sign up out back to serve and just make a ton of boxes so that they're ready and don't kind of miss a step in transitioning out of our place and into another one. So sign up out back to prep those food boxes for families nearby us. So 
Then last but not least, I want to invite forward Jerry Alverson, who's bringing an update to you as he is the new kind of chair of our search task force team. Team? That's it. You do it. That's it. All right. The team name is, is the toughest part of the job. I'm, I'm quite sure of it. So good morning, fellowship. Greetings from the search team development task force. Um, Jan Dahlman, Barb Eriks, Pastor Ross, and Pastor Nate uh, have been tasked by the Ministry Leadership Council to go ahead and develop uh, a list of names that would be good folks to, to represent the diversity of our congregation as we search for a new pastor to fit into our ministry team. We're looking um, for a new minister of word and sacrament that will thrive and challenge us as a member of our ordained staff. Um, this is where we need your help because we're now at the point where we're looking for individuals that represent our broad spectrum of diversity here um, and that can help us discern who that right person is as we meet with them uh, going forward. So we need your suggestions for who would be a good search team member along with what characteristics uh, you see in them uh, that represent that. So you've received an email earlier this week that's got a link in there that you can do that online. But I know some of you, like me, don't really prefer to do things online, which is strange because I kind of have a technology job. Um, but I prefer the good old paper. There are some fellowship note cards back by the collection uh, bowls. If you want to grab one of those, just write in, in there, um, fellowship search team um, suggestion member and their characteristics, leave it in the bowl. That would be fantastic and we'd really appreciate that. And then lastly, we just cherish your prayers. This process needs to be bathed in prayer and we ask that all of you um, just join us in praying for, for God's providence on, on what our future will be um, with, with our new team member that will fit right along with us and who we are as a congregation. Thank you. Hear God's word preached and hear God's word read. Um, our dependence is upon the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and we root ourselves in who God has been and is currently uh, to us. So I invite you to uh, actually stand with us and sing of God's steadfastness. And at this time, our children who are, you can stand, let, you can stand while I'm talking, this is good. Uh, as our kids um, who are ages three through seven, our summer rhythm now is for them to um, go for children and worship so you can meet Miss Betsy out in the atrium. Let's sing together.
Well, good morning. It's a privilege uh, for me to introduce Matt Scogan, the 14th president of Hope College. You will get to hear him, obviously, this morning. He is uh, preaching for us. And I, I first met Matt about 22 years ago. Uh, he was a sophomore student at Hope, vice president of Student Congress. I was beginning my presidency at Hope. And after meeting with Matt just a few times, I came to this conclusion, this guy is really special. And I honestly said this prayer to myself, dear Lord, don't let us mess this guy up while he's here. <laughs> and I think we did okay because Matt really flourished at Hope as a political science and economics major. And then, uh, as in his junior year, he took an internship at the White House and was there for a semester on Hope's Washington semester program. And then he came back to Hope for his senior year and was president of Student Congress. Well, then began a really exceptional, really extraordinary career. Uh, it began with the an appointment to work as an aide with a state representative. And during this time, she said to Matt, uh, Matt, you, know, you need to go to graduate school. And Matt said, well, where do I go? And she said, well, well Harvard, of course, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard in public policy. And Matt said, well, I'm, I'm just from a small town, a small Christian liberal arts college. She said, Harvard the Kennedy School at Harvard. And Matt went there, and this began really, uh, as I mentioned, an extraordinary career. He um, became involved in uh, many what I would call uh, key senior leadership positions uh, throughout the country, even throughout the world. And this started at the United States Department of Treasury, then with... Uh, international banking, and then with the New York Stock Exchange, where he was vice president, and then with uh, global finance. And so a really unbelievable career. Hope is so fortunate to have him as president, and I am very certain that he will lead the college to new levels of distinction. There's one other thing that I should say that's important for us today, and that is that uh, Matt was a volunteer uh, chief financial officer at his uh, community church in Lower Manhattan. And he was also the lay preacher there. And so I know that we are in for a great morning with Matt, and I look forward to uh, hearing his message, as do you. Thank you. Jim, thanks very much. That's so kind of you. Thank you very much. Jim, thank you. You, uh, you are and always will be my president of Hope College, so uh, that's an honor to, uh, to receive your very kind uh, introduction. Uh, Fellowship, it's great to be with you this morning. This is an honor for me. I've heard so much about what the Lord is doing in this church through you and your community and your ministry, so thank you for, uh, for having me. I love the name of your summer series, Reconnecting and Rising Strong. It's exactly what we need in this season of world history. And I want to talk to you this morning about one thing that I think is relevant for this season of Rising Strong. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about wisdom, how we can be a people who rise to wisdom during this uh, season of world history. Wisdom is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, given my job at Hope College, I spend time thinking about how education can help students get on the path to, to true wisdom. Uh, one of the questions that I find myself reflecting on frequently is, what is the purpose of education in the first place? Uh, of course, at Hope, we believe that education has to be about knowledge, but we also believe it has to be more than just knowledge. Uh, but it can't, it can't be less than knowledge. You, if you want to be a doctor, for example, you need to know something about how the human body works, otherwise you're not going to be a very good doctor. So education has to include knowledge. Some people say that education ought to really be about critical thinking. Uh, in fact, if you look at the mission statements of some of the elite colleges and universities in this country, many of them now say uh, that critical thinking is part of, or some even say all of, their, their mission. 
Critical thinking is great. I got nothing against critical thinking. But at the end of the day, what does critical thinking really teach us to do? It teaches us to be critical. It teaches us to be criticizers. It teaches us to deconstruct. And the danger with that is you can deconstruct everything to the point where you're actually left with nothing. You can deconstruct ethics. You can deconstruct values. You can deconstruct morality. And so I believe, we believe, that education ought to have some moral component to it. There ought to be some uh, con moral convictions that we say, sure, we'll ask questions about it, sure, we'll discuss these things, but we're going to decide together not to deconstruct some foundational level of morality. The problem with morality, however, is that most of the big consequential decisions that you and I face in our lives actually aren't moral questions at all. So questions like, who should I marry? Should I buy this house? Should I take this job? Should I hire this person? None of those are moral questions at all. Rather, those are questions that require an understanding of yourself, an understanding of the way the world works, an understanding of truth. They're questions that require wisdom. Let's call wisdom proficiency with regard to the way the world works. Now, the Bible talks a lot about wisdom, and the Bible makes some interesting points about wisdom. For one thing, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And the Bible says that the wisdom of God comes only from the Holy Spirit, that the wisdom of God is having the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And the question is, how do you get that kind of wisdom? How do you get true wisdom, the wisdom of God? And in God's upside-down kingdom, God says the way you get that kind of wisdom, the way you get true wisdom is by first becoming a fool, a fool for Jesus. And that's our thesis this morning. Our thesis this morning is that for us to become truly wise people, we have to first become fools. And what we're going to see is that in the Bible, there's this interesting convergence between foolishness and wisdom. And we're going to use a couple of things to guide us this morning. First, and by far most important, we're going to use Scripture. And I'm going to read some, uh, a selection of verses from 1 Corinthians on this topic of wisdom and foolishness. And then I want to show you a clip, a two-minute clip from the old Stephen Colbert uh, late-night show that I think will help illustrate uh, some of what we're talking about this morning. Uh, first, let me read uh, some, a selection of verses from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and this is a church that's very divided. They've been arguing about a series of things for a long time, and Paul is arguing to them that the way to rise strong out of this period of division, so they've gone through a very challenging period, and Paul says to them that the way to rise strong out of this period of division is to make a distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And Paul hovers on that topic for about three chapters. I'm not going to read all three chapters to you, but I want to read a selection of verses from the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. So this is starting with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the wisdom of what was preached to save those who believe. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message, was, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The stunning selection of verses. There's so much in there, and it just plays with your mind, this back and forth between wisdom and foolishness. And I actually think that's the point. I think the point is to play with your mind, to totally mess you up about what's truly wisdom and what's truly foolishness. Um, before I dig deeper into that passage, I want to show a two-minute clip from, uh, this is from several years ago, 
from uh, the old Stephen Colbert uh, show, and we'll come back to this uh, in a few minutes. My guest tonight says that the Bible contradicts itself. Oh, so Jonah swallowed the whale? Please. Please welcome Bart Ehrman. You're a brave man to come back. But a guy served you your head on a platter last time. Yeah, I remember okay. you thought that, yes. Oh, 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 yeah. I thought that, and so did God. <laughs> Who sees all and knows all, my friend. You got a new book here. It's called Jesus Interrupted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible and Why We Didn't Know About Them. All right, I'll bite. Why is the Bible a big fat lie and I'm an idiot for believing it? Right. Uh, well, so yeah, the book is about how scholars for a long time have said that the Bible is filled with discrepancies and contradictions. None that I read. Uh, right. None of the scholars I read, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, the Bible has books that claim to be written by people who didn't really write them. Uh, and the Bible uh, uh, shows that, in fact, some of the earliest uh, teachings of Jesus uh, aren't what became the standard doctrines of Christianity. What are you talking about? Well, things like... Uh, standard doctrine of Christianity, I believe in God, the Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, that kind of stuff? That kind of stuff. <laughs> that, in fact, uh, doctrines like the divinity of Christ, the uh, Trinity, these were later uh, formulations that they weren't the original teachings. What are you talking teachings. about? Jesus was the Son of God. Even Jesus recognizes that. You read, you, you read the Gospel of John ever? Uh, okay? Yeah, I, you ever I read the Gospel of John? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Does well, Jesus uh, say he's the Son of God in there? Uh, Jesus Does actually, Jesus say he's the Son of God in the Gospel of John? Jesus actually says he's divine in the Gospel of John. He says, I and the Father are one in the Gospel of John. Yes, he does. I accept your apology. Okay. Does Peter, does St. Peter not say, you are the Messiah? You are the Son of God. The, uh, the problem is that early Jews didn't understand that the Son of God was a divine being, but was a human being. Uh, for example, in the oh, Old Testament... Oh, you know the early Jews better than the early Jews. That's what you're uh, saying. So, uh, the early Jews didn't think that the Son of God was a uh, divine being, but a human being. Uh, the Christians were What's the ones... What's the Son of a duck? It's a duck. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. If it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it can right. raise the dead like a duck, it's a duck. Exactly. So... I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, for now, we want to hover over the verses from 1 Corinthians that we read. And that first verse, uh, Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness. Now, it's important to understand that in the Greek, there's no punctuation. So if we were writing that, we would put quotation marks around the word foolishness. The message of the cross is foolish. It's not actually foolish. It's just, quote, foolish. It's thought of as foolish by the world, by the educated class. And similarly, when the Bible says that you should become a fool so that you can become wise, the Bible's not saying that we should literally become idiots. The Bible's saying that we have to become people who are so abandoned to Jesus, who are so in desperate need of a Savior that we're willing to be thought of as fools by the world by the educated class. And you know that the elite educated class in the world today, that's what they think of the message of the cross. They think it's foolishness. And similarly, in that passage, when it says the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness according to God, again, it's quote wisdom. It's not actual wisdom that's foolishness, but it's what the world thinks of as wisdom that in God's sight is actually foolish. And this is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus works. He turns everything upside down. I mean, look at who Jesus hangs out with. His entire ministry, he's hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, and he's constantly pushing against the elite, educated religious people of his day. Step back just from who he hangs out with and look at the entire path he takes to greatness and influence. Let's do a little thought exercise. Let's say that you have really big ambitions for your life and your legacy. Let's say that 2,000 years from now, you would like to be the most famous person who's ever lived. Let's say that you would like to have billions of followers around the world who not just follow you, but orient their entire lives around you. Okay, if that's your goal, what would your strategy be to achieve that goal? Would your strategy be to be born into obscurity, to hang out with nobodies, to be a homeless person your entire adult life, to constantly ignore 
the elite circles of politics, education, and, and, and religious circles? Would your strategy be to be killed tragically before your life is even halfway over? Of course not. Of course that would not be your strategy. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus does. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And this means for us, it means that true wisdom is likely going to come in places and in forms that to the world look totally foolish. And it also is going to mean that the way the world thinks you get wisdom, including through traditional channels like education, can actually be a stumbling block on your path to true wisdom. And this is why I spend so much time thinking about wisdom and how a place like hope can actually help students on the path to true wisdom. To be clear, the Bible is not saying education is bad. It's not. In fact, Paul, who wrote that passage of Scripture, Paul is one of the most educated scholars of his day. Paul had studied Aristotle. He had studied Cicero. Education is not bad. Education can help put you on the path to true wisdom. But it can also totally screw you up if you're not careful. To illustrate that, I want to tell a story from my own K-12 uh, education. Uh, maybe you can relate to this. I was actually talking to uh, our former pastor from New York. Uh, he grew up in California and basically had the same experience, so maybe you did too. Uh, I grew up in Portage, Michigan, uh, went to public schools in Portage, Michigan. I don't know if this is still the case, at least if it still lines up with these years, but when I was in public schools, uh, we, uh, ha we had U.S. history three times. So I had U.S. history in fifth grade, I had U.S. history again in seventh grade, and then U.S. history for the third time in tenth grade. And in other years, you do like state history, world history, other things. Uh, so that meant that I studied the Civil War three times, fifth grade, seventh grade, tenth grade. Uh, in fifth grade, my teacher was this amazing, dynamic guy. His name was Mr. Jones. He was uh, just a, an incredibly uh, charismatic, passionate teacher, and I loved him. When we got to the Civil War, Mr. Jones told us that the Civil War was a war about slavery. Okay. Fast forward two years, uh, seventh grade, taking U.S. history again. Uh, this time it's from a different kind of teacher, because Mr. Jones, obviously, he's an elementary school teacher, so he has to teach everything. He doesn't necessarily have a, an area of, of specialty in any particular area. He teaches history and math and science and English, everything. Uh, whereas in seventh grade, my history teacher only taught history. Although, as I recall, he mostly taught us by showing us videos. Now, as a seventh grader, I loved that. Like, what seventh grader doesn't like watching movies in class? Uh, so I thought it was great. When we got to the Civil War, my seventh grade teacher said, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. The Civil War was this war about states' rights and federalism and economics and trade. And I remember suddenly feeling really enlightened, like, wow, uh, I, I know so much more about the Civil War than I did when I was in fifth grade. And that enlightenment came with a privilege. It was the privilege to look down on my former self, to look down on the fifth grade version of myself, and even more so, to look down on my fifth grade teacher. Like, he taught the Civil War, and I know more about it than he did. Okay, fast forward three more years, 10th grade. U.S. history again. This time, my teacher's a totally different kind of person. This time, my teacher doesn't just specialize in history. He loves it. He's passionate about it. History isn't just what he teaches. It's his entire passion. He thinks about it. He reads about it all the time. He doesn't need videos to teach history. History just oozes out of him. And you know what my 10th grade teacher said about the Civil War? My 10th grade teacher said the Civil War was a war about slavery. Like, yeah, it was complicated. Yeah, there was a lot going on. But at the end of the day, there was one big question on the table. Are we going to be a country where white people can own black people? That's it. And we ended up going to war over that question. People were willing to kill and be killed over that question. So here's what I learned. I learned that there's three tiers of understanding. There's ignorance, there's knowledge, and then there's wisdom. But in the mystery of God's universe, the tiers aren't stacked one on top of each other. Instead, it's more like a U-shape. There's ignorance, and then there's knowledge, and then there's wisdom. In the mystery of God's universe, the ignorant and the wise actually come out to the same understanding. The ignorant and the wise have the same understanding of the world. The Civil War was about slavery. The people who get left out are the people who are stuck in seventh grade with a little bit of knowledge, just enough knowledge so that you actually come out with a totally wrong answer. We see this in other areas of our uh, society, of art and culture. You see this, for example, in Shakespeare. So in Shakespeare, uh, the wisest characters are always the fools. In fact, there's a, an entire genre of characters in literary scholarship known as the Shakespearean fool. 
Because in Shakespeare, it's always the commoners, it's always the uneducated peasants who are the wisest people in the play. By the way, the same goes for Shakespeare himself. In Shakespeare's day, uh, he was not attended by royalty and nobility. His plays were considered filthy and lowbrow. His audience was the uneducated peasants. In fact, the city of London prohibited his plays from being performed in the city of London. And if you know anything about London geography, you know that the Globe Theatre is across the river just outside of the city of London, because they wouldn't allow it in the city. It was too uncivilized. Of course, today, Shakespeare is considered the pinnacle, the, the pinnacle of highbrow uh, educated literary scholarship. Going back to the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was known for being obsessed with Shakespeare. Abraham Lincoln kept a, a book of Shakespeare's works on his desk. Of course, in Lincoln's day, he too was despised by the educated ruling class. He was considered ignorant. He was considered ill-equipped to be president. The ruling class hated that he always talked by telling stories. They just couldn't stand it. And yet today, he's beloved by the educated elite class. He's the most studied US president by far. He's the second most written about character in world history, second only to Jesus. See, in the mystery of God's universe, there's this incredible confluence where wisdom and ignorance somehow come together. And it explains why people like Shakespeare and like Lincoln, who are both very wise people, they're very educated people, it explains why they can resonate with the uneducated working class. By the way, the same is true for the Apostle Paul. Uh, Apostle Paul, as we said, is one of the most educated scholars of his day, and yet look at who resonates with his message. Look at what he says about his own audience. These are his words. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. So we have Shakespeare and Lincoln and the Apostle Paul, who are these incredibly wise, educated people, and yet somehow their message resonates with the uneducated. The question is why? The answer is because fifth graders and tenth graders are on the same level. Fifth graders and tenth graders can hang out. They have the same understanding of the world. They know the Civil War was about slavery. The people who are left out are the people who are stuck in seventh grade with a little bit of knowledge, but they have the wrong answer. Uh, Karl Barth was a, a Swiss theologian, one of the most influential theologians of all time. Uh, he, his pinnacle work was a 12-volume set of books called Church Dogmatics. Uh, he took one trip to the United States, and when he was here, uh, somebody asked him a question. They said, Professor Barth, what does it all mean? He said, I'll tell you what I've learned. I'll tell you what I've learned after 50 years of studying the Bible. I've learned this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's the lyrics to a children's Sunday school song. And now on one hand, you might say, so was it worth it? Was it worth it for him to spend 50 years studying the Bible if he just came back to where he was as a kid? And the answer, I think, is yes, it was totally worth it because he understood the lyrics to that song with much greater depth and much greater meaning than any child ever will. Wisdom is worth pursuing, but there's a danger that on the way there you get stuck. You get stuck in the middle with knowledge, and you come out to the wrong answer. And now you see the point of this Stephen Colbert clip. Because when it comes to Jesus, the question is who gets him right and who gets him wrong. The ignorant generally get him right, and the great theologians generally get him right. It's the second-rate theologians. It's the armchair theologians, the people who read a few books and pick up a few tidbits who get him wrong. And somewhere along your path to true wisdom, somebody's going to say to you, if they haven't already, Somebody's going to say to you, you know Jesus didn't really say all those things, right? You know it's impossible for one man's death to cover all your sins, right? You know Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, right? You know the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, right? See, 10th graders like Karl Barth have answered all of those questions definitively. 5th graders don't even ask the questions. Either way, you're fine, <laughs> as long as you don't get stuck in the middle. As long as you don't get stuck in the middle in 7th grade. Stephen Colbert is pretty open about his faith journey. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. He grew up a devout Catholic, uh, wandered from the faith in his early adult years, and the story as he tells it is that when he was in his early 20s, he was walking on the sidewalk in Chicago, and someone handed him a Bible, and he started reading it. And as he says, he read the Gospel of Matthew, and it pierced his heart like lightning. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He pierces hearts. And it happened to Stephen Colbert. And I don't know if this is still the case, but for a long time, he taught Sunday school every morning at a church in, in New Jersey, just outside New York City. His guest on that show, his guest happens to be a guy who went to a place called Wheaton College. Okay. I got nothing against Wheaton College. Great school. 
But somewhere along the line, this guy just decided that he's better than all of this. And he's made an entire career out of writing books saying the Bible is all made up. And Stephen Colbert in that clip is a 10th grader. He has true wisdom, but he's acting like a 5th grader so that he can make fun of a 7th grader. Because according to Jesus, the foolish things of the world will be used to shame the wise. The foolish things of the world will be shamed to the wise. What's going on around the world today? If you look at parts of the world in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, you see that the church is growing tenfold the population, ten times faster than the population. What's happening in those, in those parts of the world, people are joining churches, they're joining communities where they're studying the Bible together, and it's changing their lives. Do you know what's not happening around the world today? What's not happening around the world today is that people are joining Plato study groups, and that's changing their life. Nothing against studying Plato. It's great to study Plato, but don't get stuck there because the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Look at what's happening in U.S. churches. Uh, my family and I, we lived in Manhattan for 11 years. We saw something really interesting with the church community in New York City. Uh, as, as Jim said, I was a lay pastor at a really cool, vibrant uh, neighborhood church in Lower Manhattan. Before we settled on that church, we, we tried a bunch of different churches in New York City, and we observed some interesting things about the church community in New York City. Uh, for one thing, uh, and, and this is a broad generalization, so it's not true across the board, but in general, the churches in Manhattan, so Manhattan obviously is the epicenter of the cultured, educated elites in this country. And in general, the churches in Manhattan, yeah, they'll say they're Christians, but what are they really talking about? They're not talking about the doctrines of Jesus. They're talking about the teachings of Jesus. They'll say, yeah, uh, we, we, we believe in, the, in following the teachings of Jesus. We believe in following his teachings against materialism, his teachings against hate, his teachings about love and justice. Okay, well then go out into the boroughs of New York City, into the poor neighborhoods. And you know what those churches are talking about? They're meeting right now. They're meeting this morning. Do you know what those churches are talking about right now? They're talking about the blood. They're talking about the power. They're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about the miracles. And the cultured churchgoers in Manhattan will look at those churches in the boroughs and they'll say, oh, well, they just don't have the education we have. They just don't have the insights we have. They don't know that Christianity needs to be brought into the modern age. They don't know that it's about focusing on the teachings, not the doctrines, not the blood, not the power. But you know what they're really saying when they're saying, we don't need the teachings, we, just, we don't need the doctrines, we just need the teachings? What they're really saying when they're saying that, we don't need the doctrines, we just need the teachings. What they're really saying is, we don't need a savior. We just need an example. I just need an example. I don't need anyone to break the barrier between me and God. I can figure that out. I just need someone to show me how to do it. You know what they've done? What they've done is they've taken the heart out of Christianity. They've just taken the gospel out of it. And they've turned it into a philosophy, into a religion. Whereas the churches in the boroughs of New York City, they're desperate. They know they need a savior. And that's what they're talking about. And this is so relevant to us right now. This is so relevant to us right now because in seasons of tumult like this, what God does historically is he wakes people up. And the question is, in this season of tumult in our world today, who's going to wake up? Who's going to wake up to the reality that they need a savior? The last time the world was in this much tumult was probably the 1960s and 70s. And a lot happened during that period. One thing that happened during that period was a revival. It started with the Jesus People Movement in California, and it spread across the whole country. One thing that triggered the Jesus People Movement was a guy named Ken Taylor in Chicago. Ken Taylor was a dad. He was reading the Bible to his kids, and he couldn't understand it, and they couldn't understand it. And so on his train to work every day, he started to paraphrase the Bible. His paraphrase became known as the Living Bible. A guy named Billy Graham got a hold of it, and he started using the Living Bible in his sermons and in his telecasts, and it blew up from there. The scholars hated the Living Bible. It's the most denigrated translation ever, because Taylor's not a scholar. He didn't know Greek or Hebrew. He was just translating English to English. And the scholars hated it, but God used it to save hippies up and down the California coast, and then that movement spread across the country, and one campus it hit was the campus of Illinois State University, which is where my dad was studying. And my dad did not grow up in a Christian home. But my dad came to know Jesus while he was in college because of this movement. And my dad went on to get his PhD. My dad was the smartest person I've ever met. But my dad was a wise person, not because he had a PhD. My dad was a wise person because he was a fool for Jesus. And his career path only makes sense through that lens, because he spent his whole career doing one job, a relatively low-level chemistry job at the same company, and he turned down opportunities for promotion, and he said he did it because his job was a ministry. And when he passed away in 2013, people came out of the woodwork 
to tell us about how much my dad had impacted their lives. Not because he was a smart chemist, but because he was a fool for Jesus, and that foolishness took on the character of this radical supernatural power and love that exuded out to others, and I saw it too, and it changed my life. And this is what God does. This is what God does. He takes one guy's unscholarly translation of the Bible, written just so his kids could understand it, and it starts a movement that changes lives and brings hope and healing to many, including my dad, and ultimately to me. And I'm standing here because of it. See, true wisdom, true life-transforming wisdom is found only, only in the foolishness of the cross. So let's be fools. Let's be total fools together for Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, you know how much our own thoughts and our own reasoning can somehow sometimes get in the way of a real relationship with you and a real pursuit of the kind of wisdom you want us to have, which is your power inside of us. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people in this season who wake up to the fact, constantly, every day wake up to the fact that we need a Savior, that we need you. I pray that you would use us as your people in this season to be examples of what your wisdom can look like, that we can be people who exude your love and your power to others, even though it looks foolishness, looks like foolishness to the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, as we consider how the Spirit of God might be speaking to our hearts, I invite you to listen to this next song. Um, you might not be familiar with it, so if you, if you are and you want to sing along, you're certainly welcome to, but just receive the gift of listening to it and pondering how the Spirit of God might be speaking to your heart through what we've heard this morning. So 
Friends, today we have the great joy of coming to a table for fools, that in the great wisdom of God and in the foolishness of the cross, a sacrament was established that has influenced the church ever since. And I can't help but notice, Matt, that somewhere between fifth grade and tenth grade, the church got caught up in arguing about exactly what this means, too, and split in wild ways. And yet we are invited, the great words of C.S. Lewis reminding us that Jesus commanded us to take and eat, not to take and understand. And so the wise and the fools come together at the Lord's table, and we come here to remember Jesus, to join in the communion of the saints, and to celebrate the great hope that he established for us permanently in this life and in the life to come. At Fellowship Church, we welcome to this table all who love God and who are learning to follow Jesus. And so we invite you to join us in this sacrament together. Hopefully, if you are in the sanctuary this morning, you already have the elements. If you're missing them, raise your hands. Elders in the back will bring them to you. And if you are with us at home, hopefully you have the elements ready already in place. I invite you to join me with the words on the screen before we dive into prayer together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Holy and right. Let's pray together. Holy and right, it is and our joyful duty to give you thanks at all times and in all places, O Lord, our Creator, Almighty and everlasting God, for you created heaven with all its hosts and earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown the fullness of your love to us by sending into this world your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word made flesh for us and for our salvation, for the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you. We praise and bless you, O God, with your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven. We worship and adore your glorious name. At the same time, most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, believing the mystery of our faith that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. So send your Holy Spirit on us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many hills into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup, Grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, listen again to the story of Jesus. On the very same night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Take and eat, and as often as you do, do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup, the cup of redemption, and he said, This cup is a cup of a New Testament in my blood. As often as you take of it, do so in remembrance of me. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you to take the bread and to join with me, remembering the very instructions of Jesus, who said, take and eat, remember and believe.
And now with the cup. I hear you clinking. <laughs> Friends, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in prayer. O oh God, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are few places in the world where we can be so, so keenly reminded of our life together and of our life in you than at this table. By your Spirit and by this sacrament, we pray that you would bind us together, please. For those in our congregation right now who are experiencing great joy, free us to rejoice with those who rejoice for anniversaries, for birthdays, for graduations, for the evidence of your Holy Spirit fruit springing up in our lives, and for all the ways that you are inviting us to reconnect and to rise strong even here and now, and especially at this table and in the name of your Son, Jesus, we turn back now to say thank you. And at the same time, for those in our congregation who are experiencing hardship, we pray that you would please give them strength for the journey, for those fighting an internal battle, and for those who feel lost in a rapidly changing world, for those who face surgeries in the near future, and for those who are secretly struggling with strained relationships. For those who seek wisdom in this world, even as it seems elusive, and for those who are walking right now in the valley of the shadow of death. We pray, O oh God, that you would provide only what you can, peace, hope, love, joy, even in these hard times. Let it be so for Joan, for Sharon, for Barb, for Nancy, for Phyllis, for Sherry, and for all the other names that you're stirring in the hearts of this congregation right now, we lay them before you right now. Lord, hear our prayer for our community and this big world, which is yours. And Father, as we prepare now to go from this place into your world, please do give us your wisdom that we may love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to worship, I'd like to invite you to stand uh, as we sing.
Friends, the invitation of the day is to rise to wisdom and to do it by being fools with Christ. As you go from this place to do just that, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Go in peace. Amen.